We are a minute past due. We want to finish uh, in good time, which is 9.30, by the way, <laughs> because uh, I, I've sat back there in the, in the children's Sunday school waiting for, for uh, this session to be over. And my kids are running around like they've had too much sugar or something. <laughs> okay. Um, let's open with prayer before we get started. Father, we are, we are grateful for <clears throat> your work in the hearts of all your saints down through many ages. Um, <clears throat> it, it really takes our words away, takes our breath away, the scope of, and power what you've done in even a single life, in our own lives. So we ask your uh, help as we look into uh, this one life, Charles Simeon, and pray that you'll uh, uh, open our eyes to your work and, and what you do. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. I guess, first of all, I just want a show of hands. Uh, have you ever heard, anyone who's heard the name Charles Simeon before or heard about him? Okay, we have a few. Okay. Um, uh, I had heard of him some years ago. I'd heard the name. I'd heard the name through the Charles Simeon Trust and became acquainted with that ministry uh, that we'll talk about just a, a bit later on. Uh, but I have never taken the opportunity until I was reading uh, <clears throat> this chapter on Charles Simeon to, to get an idea of who they were, you know, why he, why they named their ministry after him. Uh, we're going to look at the life of uh, Charles Simeon this morning as part of our series of biographies <clears throat> from Piper's 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Um, and, and you'll notice the sub, subtitle, uh, Faithful, Flawed, and Fruitful, if you can't read it. Um, as far as the, uh, what these biographies are, <clears throat> um, the term that occurred to me really is more, instead of just being a simple biography, it's a spiritual biography. Uh, <clears throat> And I, and I think that even that term has had different meanings down through the down through the years <clears throat> since the Puritans, uh, but the, it still seemed a good term for me. Hebrews, uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah. Hebrews uh, <clears throat> is just one place you can go to look for. Uh, the value of looking to the, uh, the usefulness of these biographies to the Christian. Hebrews 6, 12, <clears throat> uh, we, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, um, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. And that really, that kind of encapsulates uh, Simeon's life of uh, faith and patience over a long period of time. Um, and then later in uh, Hebrews 13, the author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. <clears throat> Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So uh, that, that seems to yield <laughs> a, a few observations. One is, I, I, from, from the look at, I've had at Hebrews, when he says, remember your leaders, he was talking about second generation post-apostolic leaders, I believe, uh, who were perhaps directly influenced by apostles. Um, and, and then when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it, it's, it's almost inviting us to look back into the past uh, to, to uh, saints who've gone before. Uh, Hebrews seems to be full of this. Of course, there's Hebrews 11, which is kind of like uh, a bullet list of, of saints and their, their walk of faith. Another way of defining this is that a spiritual biography is a look at the, the history of the work of God in the life of a fellow Christian. Okay. Now, I, I suppose it just occurred to me a moment ago, you could... <clears throat> You could probably take some value, even call it a spiritual bio biography, if you were to look at the life of some uh, non-believer and just see what happens to them. Uh, not sure I'd call it a spiritual biography, though, but has spiritual value to look at that. By the way, the Psalms are full of that kind of thing, looking looking at the the life of humans and their failures. Um, so we look at the life of a, uh, the work of God in the life of a fellow Christian, someone who, like us, has highs and lows, facing temptations, uh, trials, failures, uh, successes even, similar to ours. By doing so, we can see how God was with them in these common experiences of life, uh, how God helped them, sustained and strengthened them uh, to see the lessons they learned. We can especially get insight and perspective on our own life and times <clears throat> by looking at the life of a, a Christian from the past uh, because we are children of our times, uh, immersed in our own lives, uh, blind to the things uh, in our life and times that we kind of take for granted. Um, so that's the, that's the value for, from going back <laughs> a century or so to find someone. And by the way, I mean, you'll, uh, my, my, I have to confess that my whole exposure to this period of time is largely through Jane Austen movies and novels. <laughs> so I'm not acquainted with, with uh, the things we uh, see in here, things like uh, locking up, people locking up their pews, for instance, and, uh, um, and the whole idea of, uh, in, uh, what is it, livings being granted by the leading, the leading uh, 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 
influential person in the area, you know, to a, to a vicarage. Um, so we'll look at that. Uh, so so those are kind of incongruities, but but there there is value in looking at the things they face. They face the same temptations, same highs and lows. So to me, the uh, what would the, uh, what this might look like? Maybe three buttons is more than I can handle. <laughs> what this might look like, and uh, is this? Uh, this is an approach, one approach. I mean, there's probably different ways of doing a spiritual biography, but uh, this is the approach I'll be taking, at least this morning, <clears throat> looking at their life before conversion. Uh, looking at uh, their conversion and the fruit of it, um, Roxanne helped me see that looking at a person's conversion story is a, is a good thing to do. Um, looking at their their ministry uh, for Simeon, <clears throat> this would include his preaching, pastoring ministry in the context of his his congregation, as well as his ministry and influence outside outside that. Uh, looking at their Christian life, uh, their experience and growth, including weaknesses, flaws, as well as gifts and strengths. Looking at the influence they've had, uh, kind of the immediate influence, the continuing influence. Um, um, I'm particularly interested in, with Simeon, how his just this lifetime of kind of relentless preaching, endurance, uh, laid deep roots for his congregation and for many other people outside of the congregation. And then, uh, of course, looking also at their latter years and their death, um, all with an aim of seeking God's work, or of seeing God's work, in and through them. So let's begin with a, a just a timeline. Oh, see, I can't, I can't. Backwards and forwards, see, forwards. Okay. Um, a timeline of his life. <clears throat> um, he was born uh, September 24th, 1759, in Reading, Berkshire, England, uh, which is just west of. London, I didn't see how far, but it, it, it looks like you could drive there pretty quickly. Um, just people in his, uh, his day, kind of his contemporaries. Jonathan Edwards had died just the year before. Uh, the Wesleys were still alive. Uh, the Methodist awakening was still in full, uh, full swing. Now, Wilberforce was someone who at least was acquainted with him enough to... to uh, to uh, write a poem about him, about uh, Simeon, kind of pointing out some of his uh, spiritual strengths. He lived through the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and not quite into the decade of the telegraph and the railroad. Um, he was the fourth, son, fourth and youngest son of a wealthy attorney who was not a believer, his mother's never mentioned, so uh, the assumption is that she had died early and he may never have known her. 
Uh, one brother died early. Uh, another was an attorney, an MP, and he received a, a baronetcy. Uh, the third brother was a director for the Bank of England. So you can kind of see the influence of the wealth behind this family. Uh, both of these brothers, these two living brothers, eventually converted and became believers. Um, he was educated first at Eton, uh, Eton College, uh, a boarding school for the wealthy and influential. He went into Eton at age seven, and he graduated at about age 18. Converted, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, he entered King's College University of Cambridge in January of 1779. He converted. He was converted in March of that same year during Passion Week, and we'll get to that story. Uh, he received a fellowship at the university. Uh, this gave him a stipend and, and certain rights in the university and a place on the campus to live uh, where he lived the rest of his life. Uh, after an internship at St. Edward's Church in Cambridge, he was appointed curate in charge or vicar of uh, Holy Trinity Church at Cambridge. Uh, he, uh, the, the previous vicar had just died like in October, and so there was a kind of intermediate period where they wanted him to be the curate but, uh, or the vicar but it, they, they saw it at least as transitional or temporary. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. He stayed there as vicar for 54 years until a couple of months before he died in November 13, 1836. Yes. Uh, it would be the lead pastor. Uh, uh, a curate was considered a, a, an assistant and those are all terms not only that kind of were fluid in his time, but they've become more fluid as time passed, of course, you can imagine in the Anglican Church and its history. Uh, and it, the, the word curate comes from uh, cure. He was in charge of the cure of souls. And so he was doing pastoral work in the, in the parish. <clears throat> Okay, so, um, so he was there for 54 years. Uh, it, it was 54 years of ministry that was so remarkable to Piper, uh, which is, it is remarkable, even in our day, especially because he endured so much trial and opposition during that time, uh, especially during the first 12 years, and, and he had different trials as he went through his ministry. His aim, uh, Piper's aim is to help us to understand and, uh, how to grow in the biblical experience of James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various very, uh, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and to encourage us to uh, uh, receive and obey uh, Romans 12. Well, be patient in tribulation. Uh, he wanted us to see uh, the life of a man who was a sinner like us, uh, who year after year in his trials uh, grew downward in humility 
humbleness before God and upward in his adoration of God, uh, who didn't yield to bitterness or temptation to leave his charge for 54 years. His life before conversion, uh, <clears throat> at seven, uh, as I said, he went to England's uh, premier boarding school, the Royal College of Eton. Uh, he was there for 12 years. He was known as a homely, fancy-dressing, athletic show-off. Uh, the, the, the atmosphere was irreligious and degenerate in many ways. Uh, this is how strongly he, he saw it later on in life. He said, after looking back, he said that he would be tempted to take the life of his son rather than let him see the vice he had seen at Eden. Uh, he didn't have a son. He, he didn't even marry, by the way. Uh, fortunate for the son, I suppose. Uh, he said later he only knew one religious book besides the Bible in those 12 years, namely The Whole Duty of Man, which was a devotional book uh, that was common in uh, the Anglican Church at that time. Whitfield uh, thought the book was so bad that once when he caught an orphan with a copy of it in Georgia, he made him throw it into the fire. Uh, Cowper said, or Cooper, William Cooper, said it was a repository of self-righteous and pharisaical lumber. Uh, and, it, and that uh, Piper comments that that would be a good description of Simeon's life to that point. Um, his conversion, how God saved him. Um, at 19, uh, he entered King's College, January 1779, and God began working uh, almost immediately when he was told by the provost that he, he must attend the Lord's Supper. Uh, he was terrified. He knew enough that... that uh, uh, it was very dangerous to eat the Lord's Supper as an unbeliever, unworthily. Uh, so he began desperately to read and try to repent and make, make himself better. Um, he began with the whole duty of man, but that led him nowhere. Um, he passed through that first communion unchanged, but he knew it wasn't the last. He finally turned to a book by... Uh, someone named Bishop Wilson, about the Lord's Supper. Now keep in mind, uh, his, uh, what Piper says is his complete unpreparedness for conversion. Uh, there appears to have been no mother in his life to nurture him. Uh, his father was an unbeliever. Eaton was a godless, corrupt place. He knew no evangelical believers at college, at uh, King's. And it was only three years later that he came to know of one other believer on the campus. Uh, and by the way, that kind of speaks to the kind of the religious atmosphere at the time, uh, which came to be kind of uh, disconnected from what we would think of as an evangelical view. Uh, um, evangelical practice based on the word, based on Christ's sufficiency and necessity. Um, um, 
Here is his own account of what happened in March of 1779. Um, see, did I get this? Let's see. Okay. In Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sins to the head of their offering. Okay. The thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? And God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my, hand, my sins on the sacred head of Jesus and on Wednesday begin to have a hope of mercy on the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4th, I woke early with these words upon my heart and lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. Now the effect, the effect, uh, Piper puts it, is, was immediate and dramatic. He was well known for his extravagant way of life, and, and that gave way to kind of a life of simplicity that was con to continue throughout his life. Uh, he lived in simple rooms on the campus. He moved once in his lifetime to a larger quarters so he could have more students in his little gatherings, in his uh, quarters. He turned down an inheritance left to him by one brother, accepting only enough of it to, for a purpose that we'll talk about later on, this trust that he, he established. He channeled all his extra income into religious and charitable goals. He began to teach his new biblical faith to his servant girl at college. Um, and at home for the holidays, he gathered the, the family together for devotions. His father um, didn't attend, but his brothers did, and they were eventually converted. In his own life, he began to practice what in those days was known as Methodism, strict discipline and prayer and meditation. In spite of this, his natural pride and, and impetuousness didn't disappear overnight. There were weaknesses that he would be, uh, these were weaknesses that he would be dealing with for some time. And we'll talk about that moment more. His ministry. Uh, the previous vicar of Trinity Church died in October of 1782. Through the prompting of his father and the recommendation of the vicar where he was interning and preaching, he was appointed by Bishop York to be vicar in, in the place of the prior vicar and preached his first sermon there in, in November 10th, 1782. Uh, for the first 12 years, uh, and once again later on, he faced the opposition of his congregation, and, and eventually it was not his whole congregation, but it was a substantial and influential part of it. Uh, they, they didn't want Simeon. They wanted the assistant curate, Mr. Hammond, to, to take that position. Uh, 
though Simeon was willing to step out, the bishop told him that if he, even if he did, didn't take the position, Hammond wasn't going to be appointed, so he stayed for 54 years, and he gradually overcame the, the opposition. Uh, some of the, just to give you an idea of the things that they did, his congregation did in lay leadership, uh, let me point out some of these things. The, the, lay, the lay leadership had the charge to assign the preacher for the afternoon lecture or sermon. Uh, and they appointed Hammond to that duty, uh, refusing to have their vicar to do that. Uh, after Hammond left in five years, they appointed another man who was uh, may not have even been uh, part of the congregation for seven more years. And only after that did they choose to give him that afternoon spot. Um, uh, during those... Uh, during those 12 years, he tried to start an e a Sunday evening service, and many came, but, but the, uh, the church wardens locked the doors. Can you imagine that? I mean, and, and left the people standing outside. Um, and he, uh, he, he once had the doors open by a locksmith, but, but it happened again, so he just dropped, he dropped that. Um. Uh, Another thing they did is they, they locked their, pew, their pews, their pew doors on Sunday mornings and refused to attend themselves, okay? Uh, people bought pews and, and it was in their family and, and I don't know, that, as far as I know, that may still exist in some form. Uh, at least it did through the 30s and 40s. Um, He obtained a legal decision that they couldn't lock their pews, but he didn't use it. Uh, those parishioners who came would, would stand in the aisles. So you had all around, the, the outside of the pews, you had them standing to hear him. Uh, his steady, relentless ministry of the word and prayer and community witness gradually overcame uh, the resistance. Uh, then, at the age of 53, after 30 years in that church, there was again opposition, which lasted three years. Uh, that wasn't really specified what that was. Oh, well, while this was going on with his congregation, he was also facing slanders and rumors and worse from students and faculty at the college. Uh, the students held him in derision for his biblical preaching, and his uncompromising stand as an evangelical uh, it, again, this kind of speaks to the religious atmosphere of the times. It was um, just kind of a superficial Christianity. Uh, they would disrupt his services, causing a carousing in the streets, even throwing stones through the church window. Uh, windows. Uh, and once they, they had planned to assault him as he left, but they failed in that attempt. Those students that were converted under his preaching were ostracized and uh, ridiculed. They were called sins, even late into the 1860s. And their way of thinking was derisively called uh, Simeonism. Uh, even his peers at the university uh, ostracized him. One of them scheduled a deliberately a 
apparently schedule a Greek class on a Sunday evening during this time when he was trying to establish Sunday evening service so that his students, uh, that his students couldn't, couldn't attend. Um, one of his students was denied an academic prize because of his Simeonism. Uh, he often felt utterly alone at the university where he lived. There's this one kind of sad story where he said uh, he was completely surprised one day when one peer, one other faculty member, joined him on a walk as he walked through the campus uh, for 15 minutes. Uh, that shows how lonely he felt there. Uh, he looked back, oh yeah, well this is the, this is the story of that. Uh, I remember the, the time that I was quite surprised that a fellow of my own college ventured to walk with me for a quarter hour on the grass plot before Clare Hall and for many years after I began my ministry, I was as a man wondered at by reason of the paucity of those who showed any regard for true religion. Uh, Simeon himself and Piper, too, pointed out that uh, the most fundamental trial that Simeon faced, and that we all have really, is, was himself. Uh, he had this somewhat harsh and assertive air about him. He came to know himself and his sin very deeply over time. He described his maturing in the ministry as a growing downward. That's a phrase we've heard before and we'll catch it again here in a minute. As far as his preaching goes, preaching ministry, Simon exerted his influence through sustained biblical preaching year after year. Uh, this was the central labor of his life. Uh, the theological label that he wanted most of all was to be biblical. And this was in a time when Calvinism and Arminianism was uh, battling. Uh, he wanted to be biblical through and through and give every text its due proportion whether it sounded Arminian or as it stands or Calvinistic, but he was known as an evangelical Calvinist. And uh, Piper, in reading through his sermons uh, uh, concerning things like election, effectual calling, uh, perseverance, he found him to be uninhibited in his affirmations of what the Puritans called the doctrines of grace. But he had little sympathy for uncharitable Calvinists. Uh, in a sermon, he once said, uh, many there are who cannot see these truths, the doctrines of God's sovereignty, who are yet in a state truly pleasing to God. Yea, many at whose feet the best of us may be glad to be found in heaven. It is a great evil when these doctrines are made a, sound, a ground of separation from one another and when the advocates of different systems anathematize each other. He said it was his invariable rule was to, uh, to endeavor to give to every portion of the word of God its full and proper force without considering what scheme it favors or whose system it's, it's likely to advance. Uh, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there. Uh, 
that's exegesis, by the way, not to thrust in at what might be there, what I think might be there, eisegesis. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I'm expounding. Uh, and by the way, I mean, just think for a moment what I've just described as a preaching ministry uh, and what the, what, the effect, what the effect of it would be. Uh, you would have uh, people who had fostered in themselves a, a belief in the conviction about the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, the uh, uh, authority of Scripture, the inspiration, Value of it in the, the, the of scripture in the human uh, in the Christian life, uh, and, and a, a sound view of God, uh, singularity of Christ and His uh, salvation, the sufficiency of His salvation. He endured one other trial. Um, in 1807, after 25 years of ministry, his health failed suddenly. Uh, and there's no details about what the cause of it was, but the effect was his voice gave way. So that preaching was very difficult, and at times he could only speak in a whisper. After a sermon, he would feel, as he said, more like one dead than alive. This broken condition lasted for 13 years until he was 60. In all this time, Simeon pressed on with his work. Uh, the way this weakness came to an end is remarkable and shows the amazing hand of God on this man's life. He tells the story that in 1819, he was on his last visit to, to Scotland. As he crossed the border, he said he says he was almost as perceptibly revived in strength as the, as the woman was after she had touched the hem of the Lord's garment. His interpretation of God's providence in this begins back before his weakness. Up, until, up till then, he had promised himself a very active life until age 60, and then a Sabbath evening. Now he seemed to hear his master saying, as he puts it, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor. But now that you have arrived at the very period when you had promised yourself that satisfaction and have determined instead to spend your strength for me to the latest hour, I've doubled, trebled, quadrupled your strength so that you may execute your desire to a more extended plan. So at 60... He renewed his commitment to his pulpit mission of the church and preached vigorously for 17 more years uh, until two months before his death. Um, his Christian life, and this really brings us to the point that Piper wanted to bring us to. Uh, Piper wanted to discover how Simeon endured these trials without giving up Okay, or being driven out. He lists several of what he calls biblical strategies or forms of endurance and then speaks to what was at the root of them all. And, and it turns out that's not root, singular, but roots. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't figure out what he 
Uh, it was several things that he felt like was at the root of them. Uh, one, one uh, of these uh, forms of endurance was that he had a strong sense of his accountability before God for the souls of his flock. And, and in the first year, he preached a sermon and uh, said to the people standing in the aisles, remember, uh, remember the nature of my office and the care incumbent on me for the welfare of your immortal souls. Consider whatever may appear in my discourses harsh, earnest, or alarming, not as the effects of enthusiasm, but as the rational dictates of a heart impressed with a sense both of the value of the soul and the importance of eternity. By recollecting the awful consequences of my neglect, you will be more inclined to receive favorably any well-meant admonition. And, and later on, he, uh, he, he repeated this kind of uh, idea in a sermon 15, 20 years later, and he pictured a, a, uh, a coastline strewn with dead and mangled bodies, and, and uh, he pictured a, uh, a pastor who had kind of forsaken, he was asleep at the wheel, and he said, this is the result of it. And so it was very graphic and, and uh, made a big impact at that time. It didn't matter that his people were often against him. He was not commissioned by them, but by the Lord. And they were his responsibility. Um, he believed, Hebrews 13, 17, that he would one day have to give account uh, for the souls of his church. Another thing is that he wasn't a, a rumor tracker. He turned a, a blind eye, deaf ear to, to what others were saying about him. Uh, Piper's comment is that the only things that could come of that, of paying attention to that kind of thing, is pride, discouragement, anger, and there are not, not emotions. Those are not emotions we need to cultivate. Um, he wasn't a heresy hunter. One pastor wrote to Simeon wanting him to answer and knock down a certain preacher he suspected of doctrinal error. He wrote back to him this, I know you will forgive me if I say that the very account you give of yourself in relation to controversy is a dissuasive from embarking on it. Let a man once engage in it, and it is surprising how the love of it will grow on him. And he will find both a hare in every bush and will follow it with something of a huntsman's feelings. However, as Piper puts it, uh, controversy and doctrinal accountability are tasks we must engage in until the, return, the Lord returns. It's not a happy business, but a necessary one. Uh, and in doing so, we must all heed Simeon's words to examine our motives in those kind of things. Uh, lest we love controversy more than the truth itself. Another uh, thing is he practiced dealing with opponents in a forthright and face-to-face -face ma uh, manner. Uh, he would rather have a, 
you know, a 30-minute conversation off and on with someone, with an opponent, opponent, uh, and then uh, kind of send missiles through the through the uh, sermons or whatever. Um, he felt like that that would uh, allow opponents to understand and aid one another rather than undermine each other's efforts. And of course, there were opponents and there were opponents. I mean, there. Uh, some that worked on some and not on others. Um, does that sound familiar in this day and age? Uh, what is it they call it? Uh, the little short messages we we can send. I don't have the app, so tw Twitter. Okay. I mean, what if we just kind of disable Twitter? <laughs> I mean, how much good would that do to to uh, avoid problems like that. Um, he received rebuke and he grew from it. Um, he, habit ha he had a habit of speaking very angrily about mere trifles. Uh, at a friend's house, he once grew irritated by, by how a servant was stoking the fire. And he was so angry, with, irritated with him that he swatted him on the back. And then later, uh, his temper broke out, uh, Piper's word, violently, I don't know what that meant, uh, against the same servant for mishandling the bridle of, of his horse. Um, he received a, a letter of soft rebuke from his friend. He responded in a letter this way, from Charles, proud and irritable. I most cordially thank you uh, my dear friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. And I hope, my dearest brother, that when, we, when you find your soul nigh to God, in prayer, I suppose, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. Uh, he was unimpeachable in his finances with no love of money, uh, I've already commented on his early habits that continued through his life. Uh, his, he was actively involved with the relief for the poor in the area. Uh, and that went a long way to overcoming prejudice against him. It is hard to be the enemy of a person who is full of practical good deeds. First uh, Peter 2.15, it's God. It is God's will that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. He saw suffering as a privilege of, of bearing the cross with Christ. One striking witness to this was during uh, a time when the university was especially cold and, and hostile to him. He, he reflected on his own name, Simeon, which is the same as Simon, who was compelled to bear the cross for Jesus. Uh, and he exclaimed about that text, what a word of instruction was there. What a blessed hint for my encouragement. To have the cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus, what a privilege. It was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy as one whom Jesus was honoring with a participation in his sufferings. Now, if you're like me, you kind of have a little bit of distance from, from that kind of... Uh, uh, attitude. Um, 
when he was asked how he surmounted his persecution all these years, he said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Uh, the deepest root of his uh, endurance, or roots, uh, was private devotional study of God's word and prayer every morning. Uh, and it's fed both his understanding of himself and of God. Uh, you might consider for a moment the value of, of that, okay? No matter, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to discourage myself by recounting how long he would pray in the morning. Uh, uh, but even a, a small portion of the scripture uh, and uh, a little time in prayer grow, go a great way, uh, ways toward a person's Christian life. Um, and w what I'm talking about really is just uh, uh, one that it's daily or as daily as you can make it and two that it's scripture uh, even a short portion uh, and three that you just take a question with you when you go into it. Uh, what does this say about God? Especially, what does it say about myself? Pick a phrase, a verse out, and and uh, make that part of your prayer. It'll it'll enrich. For him, adoration only grew in the freshly plowed soil of humiliation for sin. So he actually labored to know his true sinfulness and his remaining corruption as a Christian. He says this, I have continually, I have continually had such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. And at the same time, I had such a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overset my little bark, little boat, if I had not ballast at the bottom sufficient to sink a vessel of no ordinary size. And you get the idea I mean, uh, of these full sails overhead of adoration that if there were no ballast down at the bottom would just flip it around, okay? But he had the ballast of humiliation uh, to go with his full sail, sails of adoration of Christ. Um, there are but two objects, he says, uh, that I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. One is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've, I have always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel whilst he put them on the head of the scapegoat. And you can, you can hear this echo from his conversion, his time of conversion, okay, still carried with him through, um, at that time, these 40 years. The disease did not keep him from applying the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. 
uh, as an old man, he said, I have had a deep and abundant cause for humiliation, but I've never ceased to wash in that fountain that was open for me, uh, that was open for sin and uncleanness, or to cast myself upon the mercy, tender mercy of my reconciled God. He was convinced that biblical doctrines at, at once most abase and most gladden the soul, and that reminded me of the, the line, the, or the verse, actually, out of, uh, out of amazing grace. Uh, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Okay. And yet, he didn't consider the path to genuine humility to belittle his God-given gifts or to exaggerate his sins that he was very conscious of. Rather, the key was to look away from himself to God. He says, I... Uh, oh, okay. It's that one. I didn't have that one. Okay. Um, he says, I love simplicity. I love contrition. I love the religion of heaven to fall on our faces while we adore the Lamb of, uh, is the kind of religion which my soul affects. There are but two lessons for Christians to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. Um, speaking of his influence, uh, he established the Simeon Trust uh, with others, uh, and with some of the money that his uh, brother left him, uh, which continues today in some form, and I'm not going to vouch for the form it takes to now, today in modern, uh, the modern Anglican church. Uh, but at the time, the Board of Trustees sought to buy the livings, the patronages of churches across England that were, uh, uh, it was the, so these wealthy and individual, uh, influential people in a parish uh, would uh, would have the right to designate a vicar uh, for for their the church the parish church they would they went around buying those up they were they were like property at the time uh, and then he'd fill those pulpits with his students <laughs> uh, mentored and, and tutored in preaching and ministry by him and his friends. Uh, scattered across across England. Can you imagine the effect that that had? Um, in, in America, within the last 30 years or so, uh, the Charles Simeon Trust, named for him but not related to that trust, was founded and led by David Helm and others with this mission. We exist to promote, promote the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world by training up the next generation of biblical expositors. Okay, that's their mission statement. Uh, they have a ministry training program uh, that's really quite varied. Some of it's online. Some of it you go for kind of an intensive uh, two, three-day weekend uh, where you you have to you have to take a text and write a sermon and 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 then deliver it and get critique right right there in front of God and everybody. Uh, uh, it has three distinct elements: classroom style teaching, ministry exposure, and real church, uh, a real, uh, real life church, uh, and mentoring from a pastor. Uh, 
there are other, other somewhat similar programs in Florida and Canada, but they're more Anglican in form. Uh, I'm not going to vouch for those. Um, he had an influence for evangelicalism in the Anglican Church, and, and I hope in a moment here to kind of show the, the nod they gave him <laughs> by play, giving him a, a lesser festival in, uh, in their calendar. Uh, his position at the university with his constant influence on the students preparing for ministry made him a great recruiter for young uh, evangelicals for pulpits across the land. He, he, became the, he also became the trusted advisor of the East India Company, uh, recommending most of the men who went out as chaplains uh, to India, which is the way Anglicans could be missionaries to the East in those days. Uh, he he was involved with various missionary societies and and Bible societies. And again, the key influence, probably most of all, he exerted his influence through sustained biblical preaching year after year. Uh, Holy Trinity Church continues today as a, an evangelical church. Uh, they call it a charismatic evangelical church in the Anglican Communion. Uh, now, this slide, the last slide. Uh, as I noted before, he received what he took to be a 13-year rebu rebuke from God for his desire to retire at 60, and then at 60, continuing on for 17 more years. He preached to a crowded church up until about two months before his death. And he was buried in King's College Chapel, Cambridge. And uh, someone made a sketch of the funeral procession uh, for him at that time. Um, and this is uh, a picture of that. Uh, I, I do have one thing I want to end with, but let's, let's take two or three minutes. I know I just kind of rushed past, uh, rushed through this, so if there are any questions or comments, uh, Art would be glad to entertain them. <laughs> any questions? I mean, if, you've heard, if you know anything about his life. I think a lot of people have looked at, looked at him. I think, uh, was it you, Bobby, that just told me that Dever and some uh, really hold him in a high esteem. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he, um, so I suppose a valid question would be, was he a Puritan? Well, in strictly speaking, no, he wasn't. But you can see his, from his preaching, his life, I mean, he had, he had that bent. But he was very, I mean, this was uh, Cambridge, and it was, it was uh, Holy Trinity uh, Church just down the street. Uh, he's, going to be, he's going to be high church, at least at some level. Uh, high church of the time, not high church of our time. Any other thoughts, questions? Oh, Rob. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Of course, we, we've seen in the Anglican Church in recent years 
kind of the destruction going on. Okay, but that's not to discount his influence and the influence of others like him that probably lasted. And, and you, you know, the genealogies of the, the Bible are instructive. I mean, if we, we've kind of lost track of our spiritual heritage, but it's there. We know it's there, don't we? We're influenced from one generation to the next. Uh, um, even people who've never heard of Christ, if they come to Christ, it's because of somebody, because of the Word. Uh, without being too overly high church, I'd like to end with this. Uh, coincidentally, uh, partly because... Ryan got sick, and I was asked to move my, my biography from next week to this week. Coincidentally, November 13th, yesterday, is the date on which the life of Charles Simeon is celebrated in the Anglican calendar. Uh, the collect, or the prayer, written for that is what I'd like to close with in prayer. So... It goes like this. Eternal God, who raised up Charles Simeon to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to inspire your people in service and mission, grant that we, with all your church, may worship the Savior, turn in sorrow from our sins, and walk in the way of holiness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks.